0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Monday, and because it's Monday, that means that I am joined by my colleague Will Salatan, who is uh, tanned, ready, and rested from a great weekend. I'm guessing, right?
1: I, I am Charlie, and I, can I just first of all console you on the loss of the Bucks? I mean that 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 was yeah. tragic, but I want you to know that for at least another month, they can they can claim to still be the the reigning champions.
0: Yeah, I. Uh... I feel bad about that because that was a great moment here in Milwaukee. There's no question about it. I don't know whether you you, you followed what happened uh, here, though. It's like everything's kind of overshadowed by this mass shooting the other day. It's certainly not a Buffalo level, but, you know, 17 people were, were shot right, in, in the area where there is the, the new arena. And the real tragedy for Milwaukee is that not only did uh, the Bucks championship just galvanize the city, but it really provided a certain amount of hope that they were going to revitalize the downtown. They had this thing called the Deer District which is, you know, right around the arena. So if you can't afford one of the obscenely overpriced tickets uh, to go to the game, thousands and tens of thousands of people would show up in downtown Milwaukee to watch the game on a big screen, you know, in a big area that's roped off for for Bucks fans. And this was a huge thing. And this happened the other night that uh, you know, block away there was this shooting and as of yesterday very few people were uh, willing to venture into downtown Milwaukee. This is how cities die. Ugh, that is the sad thing because we were on the cusp of really having something cool. If you ever saw the pictures of the thousand, like 50, I think it was 50,000 people showing up outside the arena to watch this game, you know, and uh, this was kind of a, just a, a great moment. And this is how urban crime just destroys those, uh, those prospects. So. That's even worse than the Bucks losing.
1: Yes, that is worse than losing a game.
0: All right. So uh, I want to talk about uh, what happened in Buffalo, although uh, I have a longstanding impulse or whatever uh, or aversion to talking about uh, mass shootings, you know, the day after, because it has become one of the areas where we we go into these loops of the same arguments over and over and over again. This one, though, I'm going to make an exception because I think that the the role of the great replacement theory is just impossible to ignore. And we're going to have massive denialism about that. So I want to get to that in a moment. But can we just start off with just a preview of what's going to happen tomorrow in Pennsylvania? Because I, I, I must say that given the the, the craziness in, in Wisconsin, I, I have a certain amount of Satisfaction knowing that right now we are not the craziest fucking state in the country. <laughs> we don't have the time to get into how weird it is, but here's a, sh- a brief summary here. So, in the Republican primary for governor, the leading candidate is this election denialist, batshit, crazy guy named Doug Mastriano. He is so extreme, so bizarre that Republican leaders in the state have launched this 11th hour attempt to derail him, to to get other candidates to drop out, to coalesce behind him, because they're looking at Doug Mastriano and saying, look, um, if he wins, that's an almost certain defeat in November, an election we ought to win. So that was what was happening uh, last week. And then over the weekend, Trump endorses the guy. So, wow. But at the same time in the Republican Senate primary they're also panicking so you have the panic in the governor's race and the panic in the senate race this fringe candidate Kathy Barnett's been surging in the polls and w- what I think is is interesting is that her rise has rattled and divided the party's entertainment wing i mean so Sean Hannity is ripping her as an unelectable extremist Laura Ingram is continuing to give her air cover the full maga folks kind of like her sebastian gorka and steve bannon i'm sorry to repeat this but It it is kind of delicious to watch this because, you know, they grew the crocodile and now it's, you know, it's out eating people. Latest polls show Dr. Oz is still ahead. And then in case things weren't just bizarre enough in Pennsylvania on on Sunday last night, we learned that the Democrats leading Senate candidate John Fetterman, the uh, lieutenant governor, suffered a stroke last week and he's continuing to pledge his campaign, but apparently he's not going to be able to show up on election night. So this is tomorrow. So, Will, the madness comes home to Ruth for I don't know.
1: What do you think? One of the weird things to me when I came to the Bulwark, so is I I come from a Democratic background, right? And our attitude is you guys choose your crazy. We're not going to even address it. You guys, uh, it's it's for for former Republicans uh, that the obsession with like the details of which kind of crazy it is, is kind of fascinating to me. It appears to me that what's going on in Pennsylvania is you have the fracturing of the various current species of crazy in the Republican Party. So you have like, I mean, Oz is like the Trump sycophant or the successful Trump sycophant. They're all right. And then you have, you know, McCormick, you have the unsuccessful Trump sycophant. But he's got other people around Trump so he can sort of claim the reflection of the great man through these other former Trump aides. And then Kathy Barnett seems to be sort of like, it's not so much the Trumpy part of it. It's that she says crazy things that a lot of people on the right believe. It's sort of, you know, the anti-Muslim stuff, the anti-gay stuff. And she's the hardest core pro-lifer. So like she may win because of like issues as opposed to Trump. So that's kind of interesting to me.
0: It is. And and it's, it's sort of this the purest distillation of all of this. And this is part of a culture where you say something that is offensive or shocking and people go, wow, that's offensive and shocking. And then the immediate reaction is to play the victim card. Like, I can, you know, put out more fundraising that they're, they're trying to silence me. Kathy Barnett is also one of those kin- like Doug Mastriano for governor. Th- these are just not ready for primetime candidacies as well. And it's kind of interesting to see this play out. Uh, Mastriano walked out of a, a conservative podcast when they asked him about his role on January 6th. Couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle the heat. He wants to be governor. Kathy Barnett was on, which one of the cable show. was she on uh, yesterday? Uh, she was on Fox. Of course. <laughs> what a silly question. What what's <laughs> I'm, I'm off to a terrible start on Monday morning. Of course, Kathy Barnett would be on Fox News. And let's play a sound bite because she's asked about some of the anti-Muslim comments she had made. And again, this is kind of, you know, ironic that, you know, she's being criticized for, you know, the extremism of her, you know, anti-Muslim comments uh, in a party that is is led by someone who at one point called for a complete and total ban of Muslims, but whatever. So uh, here's here's Kathy Barnett uh, from yesterday morning.
2: A tweet, 2014, you said, if you love freedom, Islam must not be allowed to thrive under any condition. Um, You've got tweets about former President Obama. One of them in 2016 says, Obama is a Muslim doing Muslim-like things. He has said that he is not. He is a practicing Christian. So any context then for those particular tweets? Yeah, let me just say, in almost all of those tweets, uh, you know, especially when you look at the time frame we were living in at that particular time, we had uh, the Obama administration bringing in a lot of Syrian refugees at that time. Uh, I was watching uh, the former uh, FBI director, James Comey, testify, I believe, in front of the Senate, saying we can vet until the cows come home and we know, won't know who these people are. And yet Obama at the time was telling the American people, don't worry about it. We're going to vet everyone, and what we were watching as Americans was very unnerving. And I'm sure the people will remember that we were looking at the Pulse nightclub shooting. We were watching people take vehicles, weaponize them, and run people down in the street. We were looking at the San Bernardino shooting. We were looking at some very unnerving things that, as Americans, we thought would never happen here.
0: Okay, Will, your take on that? Because she doesn't actually ever back off from any of the things that she had uh, tweeted or said, did she?
1: So what's interesting to me there is, you know, a normal politician, somebody who's practiced at this, at least, might answer the question, might might apologize or revise or retract or something about her past. I mean, her past comments about Muslims are quite extreme, you know, that they're animals, that we we have to stop interacting with them, that we, we, you know, we can't let Islam thrive. It's very explicitly anti-Muslim. She doesn't, in her answer retract anything. She doesn't apologize for anything. She just says, hey, look, there's all this stuff going on, the Syrian refugees, and this is why we're upset. I mean, that is that is not civilized behavior. That's not the behavior of somebody who's ready to participate in political conversation, or frankly, Charlie, in pluralism, in the United States of America. So uh, it's it's alarming to me that she responded that way. And it's going to be even more alarming if on Tuesday, she gets rewarded for this behavior with a nomination.
0: Yeah. And, and that that's what worries apparently some of the Republicans. Well, it's interesting, you know, she's justifying all of uh, her hate speech by these various, uh, you know, terrorist attacks, uh, which brings us to what happened in Buffalo, which, okay, we just need to take a deep breath here because I wrote my newsletter on the theme that conservatives used to understand that ideas have uh, consequences and that Toxic ideas can have fatal consequences. And I, there's no way around the fact that this shooter in Buffalo was motivated by the great replacement theory. And I, I, we have to have these usual caveats that the responsibility for the murders lies with the murderer himself. So be careful about the whole blood on their hands, hot takes. You need to keep that in mind. But on the other hand... This is not the first time. The Great Replacement Theory, which believes that, uh, you know, legacy Americans, white Americans are being replaced by uh, immigrants and by minorities. That was cited by Robert Bowers, who killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pennsylvania back in 2018, uh, by the guy who killed 23 people in El Paso, Texas. John Ernest, who pleaded guilty to murdering one and, you know, injuring uh, three others uh, at a synagogue in California in 2019 and now we have this 180 page manifesto that echoes the previous terrorists and everything. Okay so so it will i mean you know part of the problem is that you read that manifesto and a lot of it you put it side by side with some of the the stuff that Tucker Carlson is putting out there and it is hard to disentangle the fact that The American right wing has mainstreamed this theory that was the motivation behind the attack. And, you know, what kind of blowback we're all going to get for even mentioning that?
1: Yeah. And okay, first of all, let's make an exception. I propose to make an exception to your usual, well-advised caution about talking about you know mass murders the day after. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. reason being, in this case, as in some previous cases, there's not a lot of mystery in the sense no, that this not. guy, because he posted his manifesto, right? These guys want their motive to be known. It's all about the motive. So we know the motive. And as you're pointing out very well, this is consistent with a whole series of previous mass murders in in the name of replacement theory. And one of the things that I hope we will take out of this is that the targets of these mass murders are diverse. They are various. This is not just an anti-black crime. This guy in his manifesto, I think you've probably read more of it than I have, but I started going through it. Lots of anti-Jewish stuff, right? He could just as easily have shot up a Jewish neighborhood, decided he was gonna target other minorities instead. But the previous attacks, as you're pointing out, 2015 2018 2019 they are against jews they are against latinos some of them are anti-black whoever you are and sometimes it's anti-gay whoever you are if you are a minority in this country this replacement nonsense this insanity will come for you you cannot say this is somebody else's problem so i think we need a coalition in america to come together and recognize that most of us are one at one point or another going to be targets of this insanity and we have to stand up to it
0: Well, um, our colleague, uh, kathy young who took over my my morning shots yesterday as she will every sunday wrote, you know In a sane and decent political climate both media figures and political figures on the right would quickly and emphatically disavow Great replacement as uh, un american race baiting nonsense Which means don't hold your breath And the bad news is, you know, you're calling for this coalition. I I agree with you completely but This situation is worse than I think most people realize because there was that poll in December found that nearly half of all Republicans believe there's a plot to replace native born Americans with immigrants. And I mean, this has become the Tucker Carlson main talking point. He's been he's been pushing this for more than a year. You are hearing this rhetoric come out of the mouths of Republican candidates all over the country. And, you know, I, I guess at one time I would have said, you know, the shock of seeing your words become real in this manifesto would be a moment where people would go, wow, okay, uh, I need to rethink my life. I need to rethink uh, the way I'm, I'm speaking. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. I mean, I, I, my, my, my guess is that, you know, many of the people who are pushing the great replacement theory, people like Tucker and the other Foxos, are, are simply going to try to boomerang this around and say, they're criticizing us, which is a sign that
1: we are the real victims here you know what I mean? Right. And, you know, what comes to mind when I think about this issue is a standard line of Ted Cruz has been, he talks about illegal immigrants. He said, they're not undocumented immigrants, they're undocumented Democrats, that the whole thing is a conspiracy by Democrats to open the borders, let illegal aliens in, give them amnesty, make them voters. And, you know, so it's deeply entrenched in mainstream Republican talking points to this whole replacement stuff. And Charlie, the thing that really concerns me here is we have plenty of evidence now from the series of shootings that you and I have just been discussing. And the FBI has documented it, that white nationalist terrorism is now number one. It is the number one terrorist threat uh, in terms of lives taken uh, since 9-11, right? 3,000 people killed on 9-11. Nobody's touched that. But in the last two decades, white nationalist terrorism, terrorism is number one, not Islamic terrorism. And part of it is that we focus on Islamic terrorism. You know, we surveil those networks that where we where we can. We we have policies designed around that. We need the same thing for white nationalist terrorism. We need to look and and all of these Republicans who talk about Muslims like they're the problem. Muslims need to police themselves. We need to watch the mosques. We need to be focusing on these these social media networks and other social networks that are breeding the white nationalist terrorism. And that includes some of the same people who were in January 6th, some of the same people who are in Republican politics.
0: Yes. We also need to talk about, and this is tricky because we we don't know what we don't know on, on all of this. But I I I think that there is um, often a tendency to talk about you know shooters like this as being uh, insane or mentally ill or the problems of mental health and everything and and there there may be mental health issues involved in this uh, you know in what this kid did. What strikes me though is blaming this on insanity is is a cop out because I'm reading this manifesto and I really don't want to be the reason I'm I'm hesitating here is I really don't want to be misunderstood here and it, it is the lucid explanation of an ideology, a series of beliefs. And so people need to connect the dots. It's not just one crazy guy out there. It is, in fact, somebody who has been radicalized by this kind of rhetoric, by these kinds of memes, by these narratives, which are omnipresent on the right. Do you understand what I mean by when I'm saying that? You know, it's, it's, it's easy to simply say this is insanity when, in fact... It's a different kind of evil. It's a different, it's an ideological evil. It is hate. It is racism. And it is part of a more or less coherent worldview that, frankly, if you turn on Fox News tonight, you will hear the same kinds of themes.
1: Yeah. Nobody puts up with the mental health explanation as a complete explanation when the killer is Muslim. Nobody does that. Right. Because it is understood. It is implicit that what Islamic extremists do is find young men who have mental health problems. Right. And make them into murderers, into warriors for the jihad. Right. So so in the case of white nationalism, yes, it is absolutely true that the people who pull the trigger tend to be messed up. That's why they're pulling the trigger. But we absolutely target the propagandists, the ideologues who exploit those kids, marshal them and make them killers. So in terms of how widespread and
0: mainstream this is, the fact that someone like Elise Stefanik, who is the number three Republican, that she is trafficking in this sort of of, of thing, I, I think is an indication of sort of how deep the rot has gone. And I, I talk about this in my in my newsletter this morning. I mean, she had what I wrote was that she had a bad week last week, you know, full of gaffes. QAnon adjacent smears about, you know, pedophiles and then reminders that she traffics in replacement theory. And by bad, I meant the sort of things that will probably increase her chances of becoming speaker in a GOP <laughs> house. I mean, really, but it, this is an indication though, that, that when someone like Lee Stefanik decides I have to go MAGA, there's no limiting factor there. there, There's no handhold. There's no red lines. There's there's nothing that stops them. Nobody stands athwart her ambitions and says, Elise, what the fuck? What are you doing here? So she has to grab any conspiracy theory, any meme, any slur to basically prove, you know, her loyalty to this particular movement. But what's also interesting and you know what people are citing is the fact that she put out this ad, radical Democrats are planning their most aggressive move yet a permanent election insurrection. Their plan to grant amnesty to 11 million illegal immigrants will overthrow our current electorate and create a permanent liberal majority in Washington. And by the way, I think I asked you about this. She put out a statement this morning that is a little on the defensive side. Would you like me to read it to you? Oh yeah. Okay, so the headline is, statement on the disgraceful, dishonest, and dangerous media smears. Okay, so she's feeling it. Then she has a statement, not from herself, but from some guy named Alex DeGrasse, who is a senior advisor, whatever the hell that is, okay? <laughs> the language here is, is I think, kind of revealing. And for people who understand, the, we're about to go into the cycle of denialism. And i'm expecting that you're going to have this you know throughout the right wing uh, media including the respectable anti-anti-trump media because defenses have to be made because there are so many republicans who are wrapped around this replacement theory so they have to push back against the hey this is what you said this is what this guy said do you think maybe there's a connection so anyway here's the statement from alex degrasse any implication or attempt to blame the heinous shooting in buffalo on the congresswoman is a new disgusting low for the left. They're never Trump allies and the sycophant stenographers in the media. Hmm. The shooting was an act of evil, true, and the criminal should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Despite sickening and false reporting, none of which is cited actually, Congresswoman Stefanik has never advocated for any racist position or made a racist statement. See what I mean? A little defensive this morning. She opposes mass amnesty for illegal immigrants and Joe Biden's wide open border, which, of course, is bullshit like the vast majority of Americans. She opposes giving illegal immigrants the right to vote, which New York Democrats support and have made legal in New York City. Just a reminder how she's weaponizing that. This is also in the context of this of 10 people being dead in Buffalo. She strongly supports legal immigration and is one of the national leaders credited with diversifying the Republican Party through candidate recruitment and messaging. More bullshit. We thank the groveling hacks in the media (coughs) for reminding voters that Republicans oppose amnesty and will secure the border while Democrats support mass amnesty and voting rights for illegals. This is Joe Biden's border crisis and crime crisis across America, and the left and their allies in the media will do anything to help Joe Biden pass the buck. Congresswoman Stefanik will never stop fighting to secure our borders and secure our elections. This is the statement that she puts out after nearly a dozen people are murdered in her home state.
1: I mean, fuck her very much. So, as somebody who comes from a democratic background, I am—I I am, yeah. <laughs> <I> am almost <laughs> in admiration of the gall of so many Republican politicians that they go on offense at a moment like this, right? This is this they is happen. a moment when whatever you might say about liberals, they tend to be, you know, I can understand how this is your point of view. And, you know, they, they tend to apologize. They tend, not Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik is going, like, it's your fault. It's I'm not the bad person. You're the bad person for suggesting I'm the bad person. And it's a good thing. We, we thank the groveling hacks of the media for reminding yes. voters that I am so strong on this. No. <laughs> <laughs> so so if I may speak for us groveling hacks for a moment, Charlie, do you think there's a chance that if I go and look up what Elise Stefanik has said about uh, murders committed by Islamic terrorists that I'm going to find her saying, hey, you know what? This was an just an isolated act of evil and that she would not for example, have suggested that, oh, Ilhan Omar or some other prominent Muslim might be responsible for the murder by some rhetoric that that person has unleashed, I'm going to bet you that I am not going to find the terrorism treated the same way if it's Muslim rather than white nationalist. I'm not going to take the bet.
0: I mean, I think, that's a, I think that's a pretty safe, safe assumption. But this is the playbook, though, is you can never acknowledge mistakes. You can never express regret and then perhaps introspection. There's never an apology, never backing up. You are always the victim. The other guys, when they point out your your faults, you find a way to weaponize that. So on Fox this morning, you're already seeing people saying, you know, this is going to be an excuse to censor all of us. I. Can I just read you something? I'm, I'm sorry. I, just, I, I posted this on my, on my newsletter for people who get uh, morning shots. This is, this is spooky shit. So Tucker Carlson, and, and, and if, if people missed the Nick Confessori podcast they did last week, Nick Confessori from the New York Times did this deep dive into you know the racist demagoguery every single night um, by Tucker Carlson. But here's Tucker Carlson in his own words. These are Tucker Carlson's words. How precisely is diversity our strength? Since you've made this our new national model, please be specific as you explain it. Can you think, for example, of other institutions such as, I don't know, marriage or military units in which the less people have in common, the more cohesive they are? Okay, that's Tucker Carlson in his own words. This is directly from the Buffalo Terrorist Manifesto. Why is diversity said to be our greatest strength? Does anyone even ask why? It is spoken like a mantra and repeated ad infinitum. Diversity is our greatest strength. Diversity is our greatest strength. Said throughout the media, spoken by politicians, educators, and celebrities, but no one ever seems to give a reason why. What gives a nation strength and how does diversity increase that strength? What part of diversity causes this increase in strength? No one can give an answer. You place those side by side and you... It's going to be an heroic effort by the Byron Yorks and, uh, you know, baseball cranks and uh, Mark Tysons of the world to find a way to spin their way out of this shit.
1: Yeah. And it's a glaring failure of of personal and social responsibility on the part of the right. I mean, we sorry to keep hammering the Muslim analogy, but, but it's useful here. It's useful here, too. We ask our politicians, particularly our conservative politicians, expect muslims to police their own community right we say look i know you're not the person who pulled the trigger you're not the person who threw the bomb but you need to be like reporting on each other or like we're gonna have to surveil you you're a community why is this not true of these people too like why is you know if if uh, there needs to be a sense of responsibility on the part of let's say republicans conservatives that when one of their own is on television in front of millions of viewers as Tucker Carlson is spouting stuff that uh, has, I mean, that's 2021, right, Charlie? That's what, August, tw- April 2021, that Tucker says that whole thing about diversity. At that point, there have already been how many mass shootings based on replacement theory? And so he's out there <sighs> spewing an ideology that is known to have caused mass killings, right? And where is the self-policing on the right? Where is the self-policing among Republicans? This
0: is actually an even better point than you think, because I certainly remember during the Obama years there was the mantra, constant mantra was, "Call it radical Islam, call it radical Islamic terrorism," you know, and you have to use that phrase uh, about it all the time. And you're right; it's like you know, well, where every single time, where are the Muslims denouncing all this now? Liz Cheney who was ousted and is now a pariah and was replaced by Elise Stefanik, speaking of replacement theory. uh, Liz Liz Cheney put out a tweet this morning. The House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. History has taught us that what begins with words ends in far worse. GOP leaders must renounce and reject these views and those who hold them. I just think it's a moment to think that Liz Cheney is cast into outer darkness, whereas Elise Stefanik, whose statement I read before, is uh, number three uh, in in House leadership and uh, I I think is as likely, you know, I wouldn't say that she's got a 50-50 shot at being the next speaker, but uh, it's certainly probably, I don't know, 40, 30, 40% chance. Um, And spoiler alert, Liz Cheney says the GOP leaders must renounce and reject these views and those who hold them, not going to be happening because there are too many
1: yeah. And can I just point out here, the difference between Cheney and Stefanik here illustrates a fundamental difference in how we think about terrorism. Terrorism is an ism, right? Terrorism is about the means by which you, uh, it, it's about the targeting of civilians. It's about killing, mass killing of, of innocent people for a political cause, right? And there is a school of thought that has dominated among Republicans for quite some time, which is that terrorists are a group of people that can almost be identified by their religion or their ethnicity. It, it's all one phrase, radical Islamic terrorist. you know, Islamic terrorists. They're, they're, they're people who can, they have a different color, they have a different religion. And what, what Liz Cheney is pointing to is that the ism transcends race, transcends ethnicity or religion. Right. And it, the, the, the deliberate targeting of civilians is done, can be done, has been done for years by white nationalists, by people who look like ordinary Republican voters. And if Republican politicians won't take that seriously, there will be more killings.
0: Okay, let's switch gears, because I wanna talk about some other things that happened over the weekend, including some developments in Ukraine and the debate about the post-Roe world uh, heating up. Of course, uh, the Supreme Court issuing more opinions this week and, and well actually you know, now through June. So let's do that right after this. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds like Ray Dalio and Malcolm Gladwell. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You could also hear the latest news about Russia, featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov and his experience with authoritarian governments. And that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Okay, I am back with my colleague, Will Salatan. Um, Interesting development over the weekend. You had a a group of Republican legislators go to uh, go to Ukraine to express uh, solidarity uh, led by uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Your thoughts about that, Will Salatan?
1: Well, it's great that we've had a delegation of Democrats go. Now we've had a delegation of Republicans and we're like, you know, trying to get, if Rand Paul will get out of the way, which I think they will be done in a couple of days, they'll, there'll be $40 billion approved to be that can be appropriated for aid to Ukraine. And Charlie, this is enormous because I just, you know, for fun this weekend, went and looked up what was the Russian military budget for the last fiscal year. And it was 66 billion dollars right so we're starting to get to numbers in terms of i mean not everything we're sending we're sending you know economic aid humanitarian aid but we're sending a lot of military aid and so are other nato countries you know a billion here a billion here a billion there starts to add up and we're getting to the point of like (laughs) ukrainian parity with russia in terms of the the amount of money that's available and that equipment is you know as it arrives what we're starting to see on the map in ukraine is the Amazing. russians going backwards oh, going backwards God. They yeah but out of out of the kiev area you know weeks ago now out of the kharkiv area the Russian, the ukrainians are pretty much pushing them back to their own border and then you know we'll settle up on the east but the russians are at a point where things are moving backwards and it, 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 the question of coming to the table at this point it may be putin who needs to come to the table to try to consolidate some gains before he loses even more territory
0: i find this amazing as you know uh, i resist irrational exuberance and optimism of any sort but the the, the reports about uh, the failure of the russian uh, efforts in the donbass region are truly extraordinary you have a ukrainian soldiers in the kharkiv area who are at the russian border so you're actually now starting to see this hand ringing like New worry in the West. What happens if the Ukrainians win? It's like, oh, guys, you know, you need to get over the fear of victory. The, the fear of success is, is not what ought to be uh, top of your mind. The other extraordinary development, besides the fact that this Russian offensive uh, has been an absolute failure, is the ongoing expansion of NATO. For students of diplomacy or history, the idea that Finland would be joining NATO. When the word Finlandization, ization how, how would you describe it? I mean, basically just appease Russia, you know, to become completely inoffensive to Russia. The fact that yeah. the, the countries like Sweden and Finland are joining NATO now is absolutely breathtaking.
1: And- also, what's breathtaking is that Putin is surprised by this. I mean, you just invaded another country whose neutrality you insisted on, right? You don't join NATO. That You can't join NATO. Bang, we invade you. You know, And then Finland looks at this and says, we're joining NATO. And Putin is surprised. Where does the surprise come in? Not only does Finland have every reason to look at Ukraine and say, we're not going to be next, but I'm sure they're thinking while you're, you know, raping and murdering this other country, while you're preoccupied with that, before you can do the same to us, we're going to get under the NATO umbrella.
0: Well, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, of course, the source of all news here, um, uh, Twitter today. So Putin issued a statement or said something, I don't know, where, okay, this is, this is the summary from from the tweet that I'm reading here, that Putin said, NATO expansion is artificial, Russia has no problem with Finland and Sweden, so their entry into NATO does not pose an immediate threat. Russia's response to the entry of Finland and Sweden into NATO will depend on the expansion of the alliance's infrastructure. Now, Michael Weiss retweets that and says, it's almost as if NATO expansion wasn't his true motive for starting a major ground war in Europe. So here's Putin sort of backing up. Wasn't that the whole excuse for Ukraine? Well, you know, we we can't have NATO at our doorstep. We can't allow them to join uh, NATO, these Nazis in Ukraine. And now it's like, OK, Finland and Sweden, uh, yeah, no big deal. This is one of the greatest geopolitical miscalculations since you know, 1941, when Hitler said, Hey, why not invade Russia? We, you know, why not have a two front war? And the Japanese said, Hey, let's attack the United States. What could go wrong? I mean, this is like capital
1: letter, bad judgment. Yeah. It seems weird to say this, but in the midst of so much carnage, which is terrible, but it is somewhat reassuring to see that when things get really bad, people do react. You know, we complain that, like, you know, January 6th, nobody cares enough about it, or like, you know, the NATO did nothing, you know, in previous aggression. The Russians came into Crimea, uh, the Russians went into Georgia. Like we, you know, the, the West just stood by and did nothing. It turns out that at a certain point, when things get really bad. Countries do react and the consolidation of the West, the consolidation of European countries in opposition to Russia, because Russia has demonstrated that it is the number one threat in the area, um, is somewhat comforting that mobilization does happen at some point and we've reached that point.
0: Uh, Yes. And let's go back to the Mitch McConnell visit, because I kind of uh, my my initial reaction was uh, was snarky looking at this Republican delegation that uh, these were all folks and they're meeting with uh, Zelensky, who's, of course, you know, who's, who's of course, quite grateful that they are there. But but these are all folks that um, through their votes decided that there was no problem with uh, Donald Trump trying to extort Ukraine, uh, trying to extort uh, Vladimir Zelensky in return for digging up dirt. But on the other hand, I do think that from McConnell's point of view, he is taking a stand against the growing MAGA sentiment that is anti anti Putin um, that would bug out of Ukraine and that therefore that does have some significance. And because if you're Vladimir Putin, I mean, if you're writing a scenario, how does Vladimir Putin win in the long run? And any scenario has to include the re-election of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is restored. Donald Trump uh, abandoned NATO. Donald Trump reverses our policy. All you have to do is watch what the hyper MAGA folks are saying to understand what the id of MAGA is. It's not what Republican, and you've written about this, it's not what Republican elected officials have been saying. Um, It is what people in that circle are saying and they are not supportive of ukraine and they will not stand up to vladimir putin so when mcconnell goes there he's essentially saying look at least for now we are going to stand behind you and that does have some political risk in the republican party for mitch mcconnell and i'm not carrying water for him here but it does send an important bipartisan message so i guess i'd give him a, you know two cheers yeah. Look, I'm happy
1: that Mitch McConnell did this. And yeah. honestly, Charlie, the most most senators, most Republican senators are are on the right side of this. Right. There is a bipartisan consensus. But but the threat, as you're pointing out, is. The threat to American participation in the coalition against Russian aggression is on the right. It is coming from, I mean, J.D. Vance was the isolationist candidate, right, in in Ohio, and he won. And that was a coalition of isolationists, you know, Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gaetz, those people. Don Jr., absolutely out there advocating isolationism. It's not our problem what goes on in Europe. Uh, Rand Paul, you know, holding up, you know, aid to Ukraine. Um, So- the threat is there, and I commend Mitch McConnell, and things can always get worse, and the way they would get worse is if Mitch McConnell and the other Republican leaders in the Senate decided to join the isolationists, good for them that they're not doing that. I agree.
0: Okay, so um, over the weekend, we're starting to get a a preview of some of the political debates that we're going to have uh, when the Supreme Court hands down its Roe decision, and of course, we don't know what that decision, we kind of know what the decision is going to be. But we don't know how, whether um, it is going to go as far as the Alito draft, the, the leaked draft. I mean, you know how messy this whole thing is. Uh, but the governor of the Republican governor of Oklahoma, now Oklahoma just passed a really draconian bill, right?
1: Yeah. And they've they're they're basically emulated the Texas law, I believe. They've got bounties. They've got, you know, no exceptions for rape, that kind of thing. See, this is the amazing thing is
0: is like the bounty. I'm sorry, I'm not going to go off another rant about uh, bad Democratic messaging on all of this. No, because, I mean, you know, Republicans figured out a long time ago how to, how to cherry pick the most vulnerable point of the opposition's position. Democrats haven't really learned that yet. They haven't focused in on that. But anyway, OK, so, so uh, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt is on one of the shows yesterday and has asked one of the questions that I think. That Republicans are going to have to around the country gonna have to answer. Why would you not have an exception for rape? So here's Governor Stitt of Oklahoma.
2: Now, your law, as I understand it, has no exceptions for rape or incest. And the argument is a victim may not know at six weeks that she is pregnant. So what do you say to a woman who finds herself in that situation, lives in your state, and and feels like she's got no options? Well, first off, super compassionate about that. I have daughters cannot even imagine. Uh, what that would be like and that hardship. Uh, but you have to choose. That is a human being inside the womb. And we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to protect life and love both the mother and the child. And we don't think that killing one to protect another is the right thing to do either.
0: So, Will, I mean, that, <laughs> that, that, that's the answer that you're going to hear from. I mean, that, that's like the best case scenario answer that you're going to yeah. hear from people yeah. making this case.
1: I have daughters, I can't imagine what it's like, but yeah, I'd make them have the baby. Uh, the, the, so first of all, I, I find this point of view somewhat repellent, um, but in addition to that, like, th- th- it's way out of step, way out of step, as you're as you're alluding to here, with public opinion. Not just public opinion nationally, public opinion in Oklahoma, right? And Pete Ricketts, the governor of Nebraska, also was on TV, same thing, same question about rape and incest, no exceptions for rape. And and the, 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 what happened in the Stit interview is the interviewer tells him. You're out of step with your own people. Here is data from your state. 51% of the people in your state reject this position and like, think that abortion should be generally available. If you ask about rape and incest, the number is going to be way higher, overwhelmingly in favor of allowing abortion in that case. And Stitt and Ricketts and these guys, they're, you know, Stitt actually says he doesn't believe the numbers. So these guys are, are, as you're pointing out, in a very politically unpopular position. And all that has to happen for that to hurt them badly, to hurt their party badly, is for Democrats to focus on that issue. Yeah. But I, I agree with you. Democrats haven't yet, and it remains to be seen if they will. So, a couple of things about that answer, because
0: there is, and you know, I don't want to be misunderstood here, uh, but there is an internal consistency in his argument. And by, by the way, I've I've been arguing this for for twenty or thirty years now. But there is the internal consistency, which is that that if you believe that life begins at conception and you believe it is a human life, then you cannot justify killing that unborn child simply because it is the product of rape or incest. So this is part of the the iron logic that goes. But that iron logic would also argue against a six week limit, because if you're accepting that premise, then why would you allow any abortions? from the moment of conception on, right? And trust me, there is going to be that internal debate as well. And if you believe it is a human life and taking that human life is tantamount to murder, then at what point will you see more uh, proposals like the proposal out of Louisiana, which would hold the mothers criminally accountable? And everybody's saying, well, we obviously wouldn't do that. But I feel like five minutes ago, um, a lot of pro-lifers were saying, well, there's no way that we would uh, not have an exception for uh, rape or incest. So, I mean, th- there is this consistency of iron logic that they're going to have to wrestle with. This is a principled position. You may disagree with the position, but it is intellectually consistent. It is politically disastrous. But if you accept all the premises, then it all flows together. But then other things do as well, is my point.
1: Yes, yes. And I think this what you're doing here is a very useful way of thinking about this. There is the fully principled pro-life position. We genuinely believe that this is a child from the moment of conception. No abortions, no exceptions, right? Mm-hmm. Then there are a couple of modifications, right? One is we're going to allow it up to six weeks, right? And that is politically, that is actually an advantageous concession to make. In terms of rape, if you make that concession about the six weeks, but you refuse to make the concession about rape, you're in the worst possible situation. Your position is neither fully principled pro-life, and at the same time, it is extremely politically dangerous. And the reason, Charlie, is that rape is not like other issues around abortion. Rape touches the larger theme of crime, right? And this is this is a well-known thing in the history of abortion politics, that Democrats, when they use this... Effectively, they go after the Republican politician who believes that abortion should be banned, even in cases of rape and incest. And they don't just say that person is a theocrat. They say that that person, that candidate, is a insensitive to victims of crime and is protecting the rapist over the rape victim. That is an extremely, it has proven to be an extremely effective message. And I'm waiting to see how it plays out in the next elections.
0: Well, I I know, Will, with your background as a Democrat, you have Chuck Schumer on on speed dial. So Uh, maybe you would suggest that in place of that completely performative fail vote last week, How about having an amendment to the Violence Against Women Act that would, in fact, codify um, the fact that, you know, no woman who has been raped um, should be denied the right to an abortion. Why not have a specific standalone vote on rape and incest? See, that's the kind of politics you put people on record. You divide the other side. You put them on the defensive as opposed to showing how weak your own hand is. And I, I, maybe they will get to that at some point, but it, it feels they're, they're floundering around. And, you know, once again, that the Chuck Schumer is more concerned with uh, placating the absolutists on his own team than he is in playing this, this particular, you know, tactically smart uh, politics that you've just been describing.
1: Yeah. And I agree. It is a problem of the left. It is absolutely a problem of the left. This obsession with what I would call expressive politics, right? We're going to hold this vote not to embarrass the other side and get an issue that we can genuinely use to get swing voters in a general election, right? But we're going to hold this vote to express what all of us wish were the uh, regime of abortion laws in this country. And that's what they did. I would like to hope, Charlie, that the Democrats got the expressive part of it out of their system with that vote on the, the Women's Health Act, and that they will now come back with a messaging bill, a real messaging bill, but I'm not holding my breath.
0: Well, there are some great messaging bills out there, as I, you know, I mentioned. I mean, why not just have a vote up or down on whether or not abortion should be allowed in the case of an ectopic pregnancy? You know, let's hear you know, Republicans make the case. I guess, you know, part of me is listening to uh, Governor Stitt talk about, well, what is your response? Well, it's complete compassion, providing whatever support necessary. And wouldn't it be nice if in fact uh, the pro-life movement had a, a much more expansive view of all of the programs that are needed to support children, to support mothers, to support families, you know, and and yet, and this is a very, very old argument, but it's, it's you know, it's still valid, it's like they're not. And so at the same time, when they are not supporting the expansion of Medicaid services to prenatal care they're arguing that uh you know that they are in fact compassionate so i mean you know i i know there are some people who are naive enough to think that you know having caught the bus that republicans you know the, the dog that catches the bus uh the republicans will turn around and go okay hey maybe we need to rethink our position on these issues but will i just don't see that happening
1: no i don't either can i give a shout out here Please. to somebody on on the democratic side jared polis the governor of colorado was on tv this weekend and interviewer went after him sort of about like are you you're trying to in colorado allow abortions all the way up to birth and polis didn't play that game polis said He wants what he called a culture of responsibility about what it means to be a parent and the culture of responsibility he included. That wasn't just an empty phrase. He said, we need to reduce unwanted pregnancies. We need birth control. We need to. He was basically advocating ways to reduce the abortion rate without using criminal law. I think that is a great message for Democrats. I hope they follow him.
0: Okay, speaking of messaging, uh, what what was your reaction to uh, that memo that went out from the pro-choice caucus saying, uh, let's not use uh, pro-choice choice anymore it's you know choice is bad it should be decision and we should stop saying uh
1: you know safe legal and rare oh my gosh well, this is long okay so first of <laughs> all i agree I, I agree with them i agree with the pro and people made fun of the pro-choice caucus for saying don't use the word choice but they I, were right I, I they did. are right about that the, the reason i believe and i don't know what their reasoning is but i think the reasoning is the word decision conveys that you're taking it seriously. It's not like choosing a flavor of ice cream. You thought long and hard about it. You consulted your conscience. You consulted your other members of your family. You can maybe consulted a religious counselor. And so it was a comp. It was, you put a lot of thought into it. Great. That's a good message. Um, the, the stuff about like, don't say conscience. <laughs> they said, don't say the other side yeah. wants conscience, they do want conscience protections. You're advocating pluralism. You're advocating that you should be allowed to choose an abortion, even though other people disagree. Agree with you. For God's sake, extend the same courtesy, right? They don't want to participate in abortion. Don't make them. It's their choice, right? And and the decision, stuff about I'm sorry,
0: I thought now you're all supposed to say decision,
1: not choice. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, sorry there. Uh, we get but the that, speech police for will <laughs> clean up on aisle twelve. Yeah. Right. Okay. The complaint about rare drives me up the wall, right? Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were right that the democrats were right in the 1990s when they said abortion should be safe legal and rare because you're conveying to people out there that you're not advocating abortion like abortion is morally bad it is you're 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 killing a developing human life right and you have to be able to explain why if you're not going to use the law to reduce that you're going to use voluntary means and that's fine because women don't want abortions no woman wants to get pregnant and have an abortion she doesn't want to be pregnant in the first place right so the point is you have a voluntary coalition to make abortion rare without using criminal law that is an overwhelmingly popular position and to walk away from that and sound like you actually you actually want more abortions is insane
0: well it does feel like the people who brought us Latin X have been workshopping this which is not necessarily a good omen. <laughs> if they get caught up in sort of litigating which words you use. See, I, you, wrote, you had a piece last week where you said, you know, the two key words are who decides, which is correct, you know. But it doesn't mean that you can't use both words or that you get caught up in all this. You know, you're pro-choice, but then who who decides? Whose choice is it? I mean, that, you know, make it simple. Make it direct. But I don't know. So I, I'm I'm going to write a piece later this week, which I... I've been working on, you know, about has my position changed on all of this? Because one thing I found is that trying to have a nuanced position, and you just articulated a nuanced position, which means you're going to get attacked from both sides on on all of this. This is a very dangerous time to try to say yes, but on any of these issues.
1: Yeah. And I have to step in and say here, because I'm conscious that some people were unhappy with our conversation about abortion last week, right? And they came after me and then they became after you too, saying that I was stigmatizing women or not not paying attention to women's perspectives. I'm very interested in women's perspectives, actual women, women who actually go through troubled pregnancies and abortion decisions. They are not they are not identical with left-wing activists, right? This is a very broad number, a very broad cross-section of America, these women. They are co- very acutely aware of the moral dimensions of it. It's happening in their body. It's potentially their child. They're thinking about what it would be like to raise this child. They're thinking about the, you know, what it means to end a life that is beginning inside of them. And many of them decide to have abortions. It's a very serious choice. So I'm very interested in representing them and to acknowledge the moral complication of this issue, to acknowledge that there is, a, there is a kind of killing that goes on in an abortion is not to reject the perspective of these women. It is to incorporate and acknowledge it. That's well put.
0: And I think we ought to end on that high note. Will, thanks for joining me again on our Monday Bulwark podcast. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. I'll do this all over again.